everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Morelia Python Radio. And tonight we are talking with Mike Pinkleton of the So Much Pingle podcast, um, which is, uh, if you haven't heard it, it's uh, if you love reptiles and snakes and amphibians, it's uh, definitely uh, a go-to. Um, I stumbled upon um, his book, uh, The Field Herping Guide, which is right there. Um when me and Rob weren't able to go to Australia because of COVID-19 and um, we decided that uh, what better place to herp than in the U S. So, um, you know, we've talked about many times on the show where you, you always want to go to somewhere different than where you're from and want to see different uh, herps from where you're from. Um, but, uh, sometimes, uh, you, you, you have to learn to appreciate what's right in your backyard, you know, and, uh, we have some amazing, uh, reptiles and amphibians right here, right in the U S where you don't really have to, uh, travel all too far. And, um, you know, uh, tonight we're going to just be discussing, uh, yeah, different things about that. Field herping is somewhat new to me. Uh, uh, welcome to the show, Mike, uh, by the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's somewhat new to me, and I, I fell in love with it. And wow, <laughs> I think it's like the greatest thing. Good, ever, you know. <laughs> um, Good. I've been keeping me snakes. too. <laughs> yeah, I've been keeping snakes since I was a little kid. So uh, you know, I've, I've I've had a lot of experience with that. But I don't know. Um, so what made you? Let's. We're just going to jump right into it. What What made you want to write the book on field herping? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I had, I had been kicking around the idea for a while and I had been making notes and deciding what the structure of a, a how-to book would look like because there wasn't any, uh, how-to books. Uh, I mean, preface this by saying, if you go to the library and you go to the natural history session or the biology section and you'd look, there's like 15 feet of books on birds, on how to bird, how to do hawks, how to find warblers, how to, you know, you name it, there's a book on it for birds. And there's really not much there for herps. There's, you know, some field guides and things like that. And but there's no book to teach you, you know, how, how to get into it, right? right? A birder can get a book and, oh, you need a binoculars. You need this. You need to do that. You, you know, what you, what, all the things you need to learn. So, so I've been kicking around that idea. And then I got a call or a text message from uh, a guy I knew a little bit, Josh Holbrook. Uh, Josh is a professor, ecology professor at Montreat College in North Carolina. And I, we've known each other for a while. And he's like, hey, would you like to collaborate on a field herping book? And I've told the story before, but uh, I saw his text and I thought about it for a little bit and had a cup of coffee and and I texted him back and said, yeah, sure, let's talk. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, uh, not every collaboration on, on a book is successful. And uh, I, I really didn't want to be in a place where at the end of the project, uh, me and my collaborator couldn't stand each other because that, that's actually happened quite a bit. Um, but uh, Josh is a very easygoing guy, and uh, I like to think I am too, and we got along pretty well, and so we started talking about it and talked about it for quite a bit and started putting outlines together. And then uh, 
once we had lined up a publisher, which really didn't take that long, the book is published through the University of Georgia Press, which we're very happy about because they publish things like uh, uh, Whit Gibbons' uh, Guide to the Snakes of the Southeast and things like that, very fine book. So we're kind of excited. And then well, once we got an agreement, uh, I guess we really had to actually write it. So <laughs> so we spent a couple of years working on it and I made a few trips to Josh's house and we did some wood shedding and, and got something together. I think that, uh, I think it's turned out pretty well. Um, I think, uh, I think we did okay on it. So, and Josh and I are still friends. Actually, we're good friends. So <laughs> that's so good. It's a win-win for us. So. Uh, yeah. It's an excellent. So, yeah, so it came out what in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. appreciate yeah, that. Book. And, and the goal is, you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time and I didn't write it for, I didn't write it for people like me or, you know, my buddies out in the, that I spent time out in the field with, I, I didn't write it for them. Uh, I wrote it for the 12 year old uh, girl or the eight year old boy who, you know, their parents don't, the, the, the kids are interested in the stuff. The parents don't know what to do or how to get them started, that kind of thing. So the book is really for people who are interested in getting started, you know, uh, with field herping and, uh, you know, hopefully, even if some folks have been doing it for a little while, it might give them uh, just some things to think about, even so. I mean, it, may, it sure made me rethink uh, how I did things, how I did those things. So, I, I mean, I, I read it after we herped Australia, so I kind of just dived into the deep end of the pool. Ooh. But <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was, it was, it, it kind of, um, you're right. It, it, it kind of made me think of, uh, of, of different things or, or different ways to look at things or, you know, um, what's the uh, correct etiquette in the field, if you will. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, um, yeah. It was yeah, excellent book. Excellent. Book. Well, you know, Josh brought a lot of strengths to the, to the collaboration being an ecologist, you know, mm-hmm. he, he really, he actually changed the way I think about, um, amphibians and reptiles in the field too. Just, uh, you know, he's how they behave, why they do the things they do, what drives these animals to uh, what, you know, what drives their behaviors and things like that. So so he that was his strong suit. He really brought a lot to the table with that. And we were able to take and break that down, uh, you know, for the for the lay person. So you don't really need a degree in biology or even a strong uh, you know, experience in biology to actually figure out how you can move forward with it. And, and, you know, you know, the, the whole format is, I don't want to say heavily borrowed from, but it's very similar to how bird books are written. The how to bird books, right? Cause you just, it's easy to go out and bird watch, right? You go outside and look at a bird, Uh, but it's harder to get into bird watching on, on the next levels up. Right. And you have to understand, you know, identification marks and, characteristics of you know flight and habits and all that so and those books you know basically kind of teach the same behaviors of observational behaviors and thinking about bird ecology and it's the same kind of thing but uh field herping was never field herping is probably a hundred years behind birding Mm -hmm. as a recreational activity right uh uh, people have been bird watching for a century or more uh field herping not so much we you know back in when i was a kid we called it snake hunting uh we didn't there was no word herping uh 
and so it's come a long way. And in the past decade, uh, interest in the natural world has just exploded yes. uh, among the younger people. Not, you know, not just birding, but herping and interest in butterflies and insects and, you know, just, just the natural world in general. People are just going nuts about it. So uh, it was a good time for us to to come out with uh, a book that supported, you know, the, the interest, the growing interest that people have in, in herps. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for me, um, sorry, Rob, I'm, I don't mean to, to hog the time, but um, <clears throat> for me, it was kind of like uh, it gave me appreciation of of the whole ecosystem. You know, like um, I live up in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, so I, you know, I often tell Rob all the time I find black rat snakes, garter snakes, DK snakes. Uh, you know, there's water snakes <laughs> by me. All those kind of snakes and you know, I don't know. I guess they're not as flashy as, you know, uh, uh, pythons or, you know, I, I don't, I, in my, you know, in captivity and stuff like that. But like when you actually take a step back, I guess the older I'm getting, the more I'm drawn to what makes the animal tick, you know, understanding is sort of what yeah. you alluded to, like uh, why does it do the things it do? I, I think there's so much there to learn. Um, What's your thoughts on, uh, you know, how a herper can, um, you know, maybe bridge the gap between um, the biologist and 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 track data, if you will, um, it, or is there a, a way to bridge that gap? Does that make sense? Did I say that right? It's as far as uh, Just, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure where, what you're aiming at. Um. I don't know. Uh, so if you're out in the field and you you want to take some data on uh, where the snake is, what the temperature is, uh, what's the environment, uh, you know, ah. you know, yeah, and 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 try to understand the snake better, if you will. Uh, is there a way that you can bridge the gap between, or say, help uh, field biologists um, with that? If you're just a herper. Uh, well, it's funny. It's funny. It's funny you bring that up because one of the other hats that I wear is I, I'm, I'm one of the uh, uh, administration uh, team for a project called Herp Mapper. Okay. And Herp Mapper is a, a, it's an app on your phone where you can record occurrences of amphibians and reptiles in the field, it uses your phone's camera and it uses your phone's GPS to mark a location and to voucher the animal with a photo. And then that data gets uploaded to a database, and then the data in that database, it's a global project, that data is then used by uh, conservation people, like your, your state DNR, uh, university researchers, uh, anybody with a vested interest in doing uh, conservation and or uh, research into amphibians and reptiles can use that data. So that's that's I have to put a plug in for HerpMapper because that's I think <laughs> yeah. one of the ways that it, what we you know we call citizen science or or more more uh, perhaps more appropriately uh, community science. It's a way for people who maybe get out on the weekends and go to the the creek and they find you know water snakes or toads or whatever and they can um, they can document what they find. But the, but the cool thing about HerpMapper is you you can make what we call a voucher or a record of, of an animal, you know, you, you observe an animal. So you make an observational record, but you can also go back and look at all the records you've made and, and you know, you can 
keep track of where you went and when you went and things like that. And so that I think that's a, a pretty good tool for that. Uh, but I, I think there's also a mindset that comes with it. When I was 12 and I was blundering around in the local woods and fields and finding racers and black rat snakes and things like that, I really didn't give much thought to what the animal was doing or what the conditions were the atmospheric conditions or weather, things like that, or uh, the habitat in particular. I never thought about those things. But as I went along, I started thinking about what the animal was doing, what the surroundings were like. And then you start building on that, right? You start putting that data together in your mind uh, and start accumulating a data set for black rat snakes. Uh, I find, you know, this is, oh, yeah, gosh darn it. Here's another one. It's, you know, in a tree or here's another one in this sort of you know area. And so you start accumulating knowledge as you go along. And, and you know, of course, birders are very familiar with this, too. You know, so, you know, I've been out with birders that will see a, you know, a they'll get a one second look at some small feathered thing hurtling across in front of us. And they'll say, oh, wow, ruby crown kinglet. And I'm like, what? You know. It was a brown bird, <laughs> but there's this accumulation of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. it, it sort of goes with just being outside and seeing things over and over again. You start to think about, sure, uh, and you can train yourself to do this, right? You can start paying attention to where you're at, what the conditions were like. You can make notes on that kind of thing and, and keep track of it. And uh, you can, you can join the hurt mapper project and keep all your data there too. If you want keep it on your phone. Um, but those are the sorts of things I think, um, number one, help you become better at herping and, uh, also to, you know, if you're interested in herps, you're probably interested in their welfare. And if you're interested in their welfare, well, then you probably don't mind taking data and then sharing that data with, uh, let's say your local Pennsylvania biologist who happens to work for the state's DNR. I think you have a DNR or fishing game or whatever it is you have, the people who make the important decisions on how wildlife should be managed and the areas where wildlife lives, how they should be managed, right? So, so the data that you give those, those folks is important to help them make informed decisions, not just to protect the deer and the bears and the porcupines, but to protect the, the American toad and keep the American toad common. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's, that's one way you can, you can help and also, you know, learn more as you go along. Yeah. Hope that made sense. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Good, Rob. <laughs> I know you have yeah. questions. hundred percent. And I know in your book, you touched on a lot of that stuff as well in terms of even making notes for yourself so you can, uh, kind of a record of what you're doing and it all fits in together so perfectly. Two, two things jump to mind. I'll take the probably the shorter one first is I know in the book along the same line, another factor to consider is moon phases or potentially consider as moon phases. Now, Eric has been pitching the importance of moon phases just in terms of observations, even of captive snakes that don't even have direct exposure to, to perceive this so that presumably we're talking about uh, factor, factors at play in terms of captive os- observation that are reflecting things that are sub-even kind of our uh, comprehension, right? Or our direct observation or direct um, 
directly taking it in. So that that's all he's always been pitching that, and I know that he absolutely adored the fact that your book addressed that as a possible thing. Or you can always <laughs> find an alternate on any given night, you know, that maybe the moon matters. Well, I, I can't say that I have I have the whole moon phase thing figured out. Uh but I I, I know enough to uh hedge my bets, so we try to plan trips around dark uh dark, you know, the dark phases of the moon. Uh but uh I think uh, we, we have a little segment in the book from uh, our friend Kevin Messenger, who spent quite a bit of time doing survey work in, in North Carolina. And uh, uh, he's a very astute and uh, observational guy. And uh, that was one of the things that he tried to pay close attention to. And so I think he gives people, it doesn't give people a lot of, if he doesn't give you an actual you know, data point that you can use, he, he, at least you're thinking about, the phases of the moon and what that might be because even on nights where there's a, a pretty s- strong moon, it may, it may not come up right away. It may not be in the sky until later, or it might be in the sky early and might be gone later, you know? So there's all kinds of variables there uh, that, uh, that come into play. And of course, there's always, um, there's always the few derpy things that are out traipsing about in bright moonlight, <laughs> No matter, and I don't. I don't know how you. You still find stuff. So, uh, you know, I don't know what the, what to say about that. I just call them derpy herps because they're just <laughs> not. Uh, there's always herps that don't do what you think they're going to do. You know, they're they're uh, you know just kind of yeah. traipsing around in, in the moonlight and. Uh, uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I guess the owls have to eat too, right? <laughs> well, they do. They do. I'm pro owl too. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Good, Rob. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Uh, I did want to point out as well that at least this week, I mean, your book is in great demand. It was sold out on Amazon. Presumably, they're trying to get some more. But oh yeah, they should have them by now. Uh, that was a, a um, that was a. In fact, last week, uh, Josh and I talked and. Uh, there was a great consternation between the two of us. It's like Christmas is approaching and our book is not available through the largest book retailer in the world. Uh, so we sent out some inquiries and we found out that we had sold out our first print run and that the press had been working hard at getting our second print run done and getting copies off to Amazon. And so I think as of I think as of yesterday, that's available again. So got my fingers crossed on that. So. Uh, so we're happy about that. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic it, news. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our timing, you know, we, we've half of the time the books have been available. So time so far, we've been in the middle of a, a global pandemic. So uh, <laughs> it's not been great time for anybody who writes books. But, uh, but you know, we're happy so far with uh, how it's doing. So nice, know. awesome. Yeah, I know one. The, you, the most. Probably the most telling, you know, it's like, oh, we, you know, okay, we sold out of the first run and all that. But the telling thing is that, and Josh always reminds me, he'll he'll text me every few weeks and he'll let me know how many five-star reviews we have on Amazon. That's the important thing, right? Is how many five-stars do you have? So I think we have 65 five-stars. So that, that makes me feel, feel good. So Nice. Very good. That's fantastic. The one other thought that that you had uh, brought up in the moon cycle or uh, moon chart 
concept is uh, that the time moon moonrise and moonset times, right? So that is something that, in addition to going towards the dark side, depending on whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, right? That can also influence it depending how. Um, the interesting bit about Herping Australia is how close to at least the parts that we've been, the northern middle to northern bits, is how close it is to a twelve twelve, maybe it's thirteen eleven cycle much of the year. And so how much oh. how how little the sun is up, you know, compared to here where in the it if we were in the same sort of seasonal conditions, we'd be used to saying, Oh, we'll have to be out at eight o'clock at night or eight to nine is gonna it's gonna be getting dark and all this stuff. But you're in Australia and it's getting dark at six o'clock. And then okay, maybe it matters if the the moon is setting before that even happens or you know when you're on that around that new moon often yeah you're having periods of time where it's wouldn't even be in the sky anyway it's set on that uh final final quarter um it's actually Uh, setting before the sun goes down and these sorts of things it's very interesting okay interesting because i i it was something i hadn't really thought about is how it is in well like places like australia yeah interesting yeah, when we and have, you know whether whether you have a if you still if you have a moon you still got to go right you still got to go you yeah. got to do it so. right <laughs> our buddy Justin Julander was looking for uh, Nephurus asper in Queensland and he had managed is kind of the timing of the trip was predicated upon getting a good fare rather than uh, the sort of conditions right so that that was the driver for the time frame and he wound up. Uh, he goes out, he actually brought his children and goes out and is looking for these geckos. And I guess the moon was behind the clouds and the clouds parted, revealing to him that he was looking for geckos on the night of a full supermoon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to little effect. <laughs> so. Okay. Very cool. Uh, you pays your money and you takes your chances, right? Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. That kind of reminds me, too, of something I hear people talking about wind. And they'll say, oh, man, the winds, high winds today. It's just, you know, I never find snakes when the winds are are high. And I think, well, okay, maybe in places where there isn't normally a high wind. But if if you go herping in Kansas, uh, in the plains of Kansas, you know, there's there's nothing but high wind and the winds are just going all the time. And, you know, the herps, the herps don't care about wind in Kansas. It's just not a, you know, that's, that's just not going to stop them. If they, if they only went out when it wasn't windy, they'd never come out. So, uh, so I guess it depends. It's a situational and a geographic geographical thing. Right. So. Sure. Yeah. One other uh, point that I wanted to bring up, you know, talking about herp mapper, it's kind of comparing or there are some fundamental distinctions between herp mapper and kind of a similar thing, iNaturalist, in terms of the yeah. specificity of information, the availability of spe- uh, those specific details to you know people who, uh, for want of a better word, shouldn't be getting it, or at least you know the, uh. the level of researchers or DNR or any you know don't have there. There's uh, graduated access to the specifics. Yeah, um, there's, I, I would say, iNaturalist is, <laughs> has been a great tool for, for many people to figure some things out. 
and unfortunately, it, it's kind of easy for people to fa- for you know the bad people that uh, want to yank things out of the environment and put them in the bag and sell them somewhere in, in China or, or whatever. Uh, it, it's been too easy for them to to figure things out, and so that's become sort of a perplexing problem for you know how do you run a uh, not just a data gathering uh, enterprise, but it's it's you know a place where people come together and share information about the natural world and they you know you get to see what other people are experiencing and you learn to identify you know caterpillars or there's this this great resource for doing all these cool things in the natural world but there's also this you know this evil element to it that you know tries to constantly you know poke at it uh and for hurt mapper that's one of the things when the project first got was starting to, uh, you know, come to fruition before, you know, code is even written is how to protect the data and how to keep sensitive data sensitive. Uh, and, and so Hurt Mapper's method for that is to obscure all records uh, below the county level. So in other words, if you go to the Hurt Mapper, hurtmapper.org, you go there uh, on the, the front page, yeah, there's a running blow-by-blow blow account of what records are being entered into the system. So you can kind of, if you want, you can go there and just see what other people around the world are finding. It's kind of cool. But uh, you only get so much information there. You get a picture and the country and maybe the state and maybe the county or province or whatever. But you get nothing, no finer detail than that. So you can't really drill down into that and... Well, at least the general public can't drill down into that and gather speci- what we call specific locality data. Uh, that information is only made available to what we call our data partners, and those are the, the the folks we were talking about earlier: your your conservation people, your researchers, you know, your people doing research, you know, ac- academics, uh, your your fish and game folks, and those are what we would call vetted partners, right? We're we don't let anyone, we can't, uh, you know, if, uh, if Rob, you come up and say, Hey, it's Rob. And, uh, just as a hobby, I, I really like to see all the records for, you know, carpet pythons in Australia. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure you're a good guy, Rob, but we're not going to give you that information <laughs> uh, unless you can show us your, your bona fides, right? You, yes. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a researcher at Adelaide University, and this is my advisor, and and here's, you know, here's what we're doing. I'm giving you an abstract on what we're planning to study. So, you know, there's this whole vetting process for what we call data partners, and we have uh, close to 100 data partners now, and our biggest one is the United States Department of Defense. And uh, so those folks use, you know, they have a lot of property that they manage across our, our country and they try to take good care of it and be good stewards. And so uh, they try to keep track of the herpetofauna on, on, you know, DOD property. So, so we have, uh, you know, data partners like that that have access to that data. But, you know, it's only, it's only going to be used in some, you know, good way that benefits the animal and the preservation of the animal. So, right. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting topic to to talk about, right? Just fundamentally, I th- yeah, I, th- I think it has certainly, it makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, as someone who wants to see those things, obviously there's a, there's a countervailing um, pull, right? But I recognize the 
the importance of what uh, of what's reflected there in that policy. Well, I mean, if you look at HerpMapper long enough, if you go in and look at the records, and I mean, you can gather ideas about how how to find some herps, but you're never going to get a location. I mean, you can get knowledge. I mean, don't get me wrong, but but it's, you're never going to be able to find the location and go there and and you know yoink that animal out of out of the field. Um, but you know, it's it's kind of cool to to get a better feel for all types of different animals. And, and the other, and this, this is the part that always gets sort of uh, underreported or under, uh, it, it's not underappreciated maybe, but uh, uh, so I've been with that project since, since it's of uh, inception. And uh, I have almost 9,000 records in the database. Uh, so basically what I've been doing since 2013, well, actually before that, is every almost every herp I've seen in the wild, I've made a record of. It's just sort of second nature to me now. Um, so you know, basically, I'm a walking herp survey. <laughs> but uh, but when I need to think about what that species of Certodactylus was in Thailand, what I can't remember the species. I can go look it up because I've got it. I've got a record of it, and I have all the access to my own records. I have complete access to, to my own records, so I can go look that up. And so I have, you know, as, as, uh, as you get, I'm in my sixth decade now, and sometimes, uh, you can't remember everything. And so it's a great little tool to keep me, keep, help me keep track of the things I've seen and the places I've seen them in. So, uh, so I like that. I think that's a great tool to help people who are, you know, getting into field herping a little more seriously and, you know, trying to keep track of what they found and where they found it. So right. it helps me a lot. I know that. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Is the Herp Map, I believe the answer is yes. Is the Herp Mapper stuff uh, hooked up to, or does it feed into the Atlas of Living Australia spatial portal and all that? Like once the records are made that they, they then are included there as well? Yeah, we have a, we have a relationship with them. They're one of what we call it a data partner or a, um, a two-way partner partnership. Yeah. And there's, we share data. Yeah. With them. And, uh, I believe that's where I, if I remember right, that's where I came in contact with Scott, uh, Scott Iper too. So yeah, we do have a relationship with them and, uh, we're of course open to having more relationships with more organizations around the globe. Uh, and, Kind of related to that too. Um, we we also have some relationships with some of the state herp atlas projects around the country. Uh, for example, in North Carolina, or the Carolina Herp Atlas Project has uh, it says sort of the, uh, the Carolina Herp Atlas front end. But the if people put records in, they actually end up in Herp Mapper, and so there's a, a data exchange there as well. So we've been instrumental in helping. Uh, not only we've actually set up a few herp atlases for a few states, and then you know there's obviously this this data kind of is shared, flowed back and forth, um, and of course, in a secure manner as as well. But uh, so we're always looking for partnerships like like that. So as we go along, hopefully, and this year has been kind of tough for everybody, right? You know, yeah. not much has happened on the herp mapper front, just like uh, many other projects and things going on in the world. Everything's kind of on hold, so. Hopefully, at, at next year we'll start, you know, 
picking up some steam on that kind of stuff again. I'm sure all three of us are itching at the bit to get back out there. <laughs> you know? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, Is there a place? Well, that- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So we'll get we'll get there. I have so one um, an additional point, right? While we're talking about sort of disclosing localities in this sort of discussion, right? Uh, that you highlighted that I think actually is a great, uh, actually is very informative about even the hurt mapper level of uh, access or information is when you're dealing with things that have where the historical range is substantially different from the range that exists now, whether that's in the context of uh, something in the United States where we've had urbanization in the Northeast or something that's rapid, uh, that has substantially changed the habitat. So yeah. uh, uh, a range from 1950 doesn't have a ton of value, whereas even seeing the county level of something now says, okay, well, we have some hope that it's still there. Or the thing that really jumped out when you were talking about that to me is, say, uh, you know, coastal Eastern Australia with the introduction of the cane toad, if we can look and say, well, they're still finding carpets in this neck of the woods now in the last 20 years, that actually means something, you know, where, where we can say that that is still there. Whereas if we're solely looking at records from the, I don't know, 1970, depends where you're at, right? Darwin pre-2010, is well, that doesn't tell me anything about whether that goanna or python is still there today. Um, so if we saw a record for a Mitchell's monitor in outside of Darwin today, that actually would mean, I say, that's a good news. You know, just that, that would tell yeah. me something. Right. Well, one of the, one of the concepts we use and it, I didn't, we didn't coin it, but we use it is the concept of keeping common species common. Right. So you've got American toads at the park down the street from you. Uh, you want to keep them there. Uh, you want them to stay. You want these common things to stay where they're at. And so h- how do you know if they're, how do you know that? Well, you, you'd know that by monitoring them. People will say, well, you know, uh, I don't, I didn't, just didn't feel right putting in all these toad records. I, I, you know, I thought you guys would want the, you know, the more sexy, you know, the more sexy rattlesnake records. Like, no, 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 no. We want it all. We want the common species recorded so that, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, somebody can look at that data and go, these things occurred here during this time frame. And thank goodness they still occur here during this time frame. Or, oh my gosh, they're not here anymore or something. And we're hoping that as we collect enough, we get to the point where we have enough data for regions on common species and, and even uncommon species that it's easier to track uh, the occurrence and the continued occurrence of those species over time. And you can start, sp- you know, do some trend spotting and go, oh my gosh, we seem to be having a problem here. Uh, the, you know, the, the toads down the street, nobody's making records for the toads here anymore. Things like that too. Uh, so we, we you know those are the things we try to think about and try to present to people as, as important. And, Another one is is sort of what you know based on phonology, right? The you know the uh, you have salamanders that uh, emerge from the ground, migrate to pools and breed every year. You have frogs that come up every spring, go to breeding ponds, call, breed, and, and then you know then go to do their thing. So you want to you want to document all that to make sure that that stuff is still happening. 
um, because it, when it stops happening, then people can look at that and go, we, we've got to see what's going on here. Maybe we need to step in and do some, uh, you know, some intervention or some mitigation work here to, to bring those species back or to conserve where they're still left or whatever, because there's no guarantees on things remaining common, as we all know. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think the other important point that you had raised to me in terms of conceiving of sort of locality stuff, right? Uh divulging locality information is think as a lot of the audiences, uh, snake guys, right. And we think of snakes or something that tend to produce a large number of offspring that disperse and the vast majority of them wind up not making it, whether it's as food as to something else, or they just wind up dying on a road or whatever it is. Um, and so that's sort of our, our mentality. And even some, a lot of the captive stuff focuses on take gray band and king snakes, right. For example, where the hue, the, public exposure to those animals ranges is very narrow and often involves road, you know, manufactured road cuts. Uh, and so it's that whole, the kind of the serious quote, serious portion of that community focus on and says, Oh, well, we were at nine miles North of Sanderson and everyone who's involved knows what that means. And this is this tiny, infinitesimally small fraction of range. But the important thing that you brought up to me that I think is important for people who aren't conceiving of it in this way is it's entirely different if you're talking about a wood turtle that takes an extended period of time to become mature and the, they don't kind of reproduce in that burst way. And the survivability rate is, uh, should be much higher than we, than we would see on a king snake. Yes. Yes. I mean, every wood turtle hit by a car is just a crushing blow to the species in my, in my mind. It, you know, they have a, a low replacement rate, uh, unlike, unlike snakes. Uh, and there are many, many roads in wood turtle habitat where for gray banded king snakes, there's, there's a few roads. There's not that many roads or road cruts. So the impact on those animals is considerably less. And so that, that stuff's important. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is also important about hurt mapper is people can record, you know, DORs, um, you know, dead on road, uh, herps, uh, which is also just as important, right? We want to make sure it's still a occurrence data. So we want to make sure that those things get uh, recorded. And of course, if you, uh, if you look at some places that have large turtle populations uh, that uh, use habitat close to roads, you've seen projects that, where they put up fences to prevent the turtle, you know, turtles from getting decimated on roads. And and so those projects also rely on uh, DOR specimens and da- data from DORs to understand where road mortality is a big problem. And it goes for things like migrating salamanders as well, you know, things like that, where for a small period of time, road mortality is a real issue, right? It's not an issue from April through January, but, you know, February and March road mortality is, is a key issue and, and those things are not easy, always easy to spot. So DOR records also help us to understand when road mortality is an important thing and, you know, helps us, uh, folks to understand when steps should be taken to help prevent that from happening. 100%. Now, Eric, we can, we can come back. I think that was most of the stuff I had in terms of 
sort of general ideas and concepts and stuff. I think the the last thing, or maybe the the step to leading into this, and I actually just saw it today, and I was blown away, is the blog that you maintain on fieldherping.org. Oh, somebody looked at that. All right. <laughs> yeah, me today, and I know I'm going to be looking at it for a, a long time. There's a, a ton of great stuff there. Also, you should pitch it more more publicly on the podcast. I'm trying to do that here so people people go check it out. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, that that whole thing is, has had a long history, um, and I started recording field adventures, if you will, in 1996. Uh, I was sort of an early adopter to the World Wide Web and, um, you know, had a herp page out there in the early 90s. And and uh, in 96, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to start recording some of these. And so that's what I started doing, start telling little stories about the things we saw them posting pictures and, and so on and so forth. And we we're actually uh, a few people doing it at the time. And so we were kind of blogging before blogs were invented, if you will. And so that's sort of carried forward. And uh, I, I did a much better job at it back then. But uh, uh, once I started getting in higher in, in management um, at the university, uh, I retired from the University of Illinois last year, but uh, once I started getting a higher up in the management chain, I had a lot less free time and, and it's just sort of, that sort of work just kind of drained the creative juices out of me. But uh, I still try to work on that, on that blog occasionally. And I have uh, um, uh, a trip to, to, I made to Ecuador. I'm getting ready to po- post that in a, a few days, I hope. So I'm trying to keep at it, but uh, I've been sort of uh, pressed for time, but I really enjoy that kind of thing. I like it when other people do it. Um, I like there's more than, you know, there's other people out there who do the same kind of things and whether they're going to some exotic location or if it's just something or around their neck of the woods, uh, I, I enjoy reading those, you know, all of those. So, okay. Some point my, uh, uh, you know, my buddies, uh, Mike and Andrea Howlett who live in Boston, they do one called hit me with your nature stick. And uh, which is a great title, but uh, hit me with your nature stick is about their their forays out around, you know, the Massachusetts area and that and they do herp and they go out and they find, you know, garter snakes and turtles and uh, water snakes and, you know, cool stuff like that. And, and it's just sort of this every time they go out and have an outing, they make a blog post. And I just get a kick out of things like that. You know, uh, again, you're living vicariously through other people's adventures. So. A hundred percent. I know. So our, our buddy Justin Julander, who we mentioned previously, kind of inspired the does the same thing in the context of all his uh, various adventures, starting with uh, or one of the the early ones, uh, kind of in the same vein, possibly as what the experience you've seen with his trips to Australia. And they were, I mean, chapters of books essentially at first, and they've become more less and less, you know, detailed over time as you know time constraints are, are more yeah. in play. But, uh, man, it's, it's really like being along for the ride. You know, it's fantastic. And uh, I really like what well, you've done with yours, where you've highlighted, highlighted and bolded the species name. So it's very clear. Oh, okay. Especially on my, you know, if my device is slow to load, at least I know what's, I have some idea what's coming. And I need to <laughs> jump, jump ahead to that uh, Pataius Major or whatever it would be. Ah, yeah. 
Uh, okay, well, uh, maybe I will uh, get a little busier with that. Uh, glad glad to hear you that you like them. And uh, blogs are, it's just one of those things that sort of people don't seem to have much time for anymore. Yeah. Uh, back in, you know, we go back 20 years, uh, there was a lot more common and people seem to have a, a greater, um, uh, more time for them, or that was just something, you know, just so much information being thrown at you these days. It's, it's uh, often kind of hard to just sit down and, and take 15 minutes to read um, something, you know, like a, a trip to Thailand or Taiwan or something like that. So, uh, in fact, I was so busy last year that I think most of what I did last year was just put up sort of a blow by blow end of the year found here's what we found here's the highlights from this trip boom 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 uh so you know not not much clever writing in there and not uh not as much of the of the essence of the experience put in there which which i'm kind of sad about but uh you know uh when you don't have time you don't have time so do the best you can right very cool yeah i just clicked on it it's uh excellent (laughs) Wow. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's, it's been a labor of love and I, I don't want to give it up, but uh, I, I also, especially with podcasting now, I, I don't have as you, you think a retired guy would have a lot of free time. But, <laughs> yeah, I really don't. So right. uh, that's so I'm not going to have more time for this stuff. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, One thing I wanted to jump into then in terms of kind of hitting specific trips, both stuff that you've talked about on the podcast and then uh, that I saw on the blog. Uh, And one, as an overarching question, I I know it's been talked about in the Latin America, South America context. Do you guide tours or are you sort of a naturalist that gets, uh, has a a formal role on some of these things and kind of where does that apply and all? Yeah, I, I, uh, I uh, I guide tours in Peru. Uh, I I have a, a I do that with uh, Matt Cage. I don't know if you know Matt, but uh, uh, we do a uh, guided Peru trip, one or two trips a year, and that all came about because uh, in 2002, uh, my Herp Society put on or hosted the Midwest Herpetological Symposium. Uh, which hopefully still keeps going on. Uh, and uh, Dick Bartley came and graciously came and spoke to, uh, it was a, a speaker at our symposium. And he brought in two slide projectors. And we had two, we had to get two screens for, for him. So he had one on the left and one on the right. And he would, bam, new photo on the left, bam, new photo on the right. And he would just keep posting these pictures and it was all Peruvian stuff, his, his trips to Peru. And at the time, Dick was involved with a, an organization called MT Amazon or Margarita Tours, excuse me, Margarita Tours. He was a uh, part owner in the Margarita Tours, which was, you know, kind of like green tracks and other things like that, did Amazon excursions and it was all herp based. And so, you know, and, and Dick had said to me, well, what, you know, when are you going to come down to Peru, Mike? And I'm like, oh, you know, whenever I, Whenever I get the money, Dick, I still had kids in school and I think I had a kid in college at the time. So I didn't really have the money. And finally, one year, my wife says, if you just, if you wait until you have the money, you'll never go. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, you're, you're absolutely right. 
so I, I managed to scrape up enough to go in uh, 2011 and uh, went and I spent two weeks down there in Peru on doing a Dick's tours and was, you know, totally blown away. Um, you know, lifelong dream of going to the Amazon, uh, check that one off. Uh, and I, I saw uh, about a hundred species of herps and the first few days I was so overwhelmed. I, I didn't know whether I didn't know what to do. I just, I was sort of in a shock. There was so much. Uh, and so it was a great time. And then I came back in 2013 cause I felt like I had unfinished business. So I came back to Peru in 2013. Of course, by then I had a really good working knowledge of what herpetofauna was there. And of course I bugged the crap out of Dick, you know, what, what is this? What is this? What, you know? So I had a good working knowledge of what was there and I had a good working knowledge of how the tour worked. So, you know, here and there I would, you know, kind of help out with, with, certain aspects of the tour just because i'm a helpful guy and after that uh you know dick uh recommend he said well you know what do you think about coming down and and being a guide and and helping out and i'm like well okay sure uh so that's kind of how i got started and so i've been coming down there every year and i i do uh uh a coat matt cage and i run the, the tours and uh, we take usually between 12 and 15 people down there, and that's plenty for two people to, to manage. And so our job is to, uh, on the tour, is to facilitate uh, people's experiences in the Amazon. We want to make sure they have a good time, stay safe, find a, a buttload of animals, and 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 just make it all, all a great experience for them. And uh, what we work, we don't get paid. We just go to the Amazon. So the, the, the cool part is we get to go on, you know, on the tour and uh, we get to go every year. And so we work our butts off uh, uh, for 10 days and make sure that uh, uh, our clients have a good time. And it's been a great experience for me because a lot of my friends have come down. And, uh, and of course, I made a lot of new friends from our clients that have come down as well. So it's been uh, a wonderful thing to bring some of my friends down there and blow their minds, you know, with, with some fantastic herbs, like things like Bushmasters and Amazon tree boas and, and stuff like that and dart frogs. And, and so that's, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we've been, you know, Matt's been down there quite a bit more than I have, but I've been down there. Oh, I don't know how many times I think I'm, I think I'm on nine or 10 trips now. So, uh, so we've, we've got it down pat and how to make people happy and how to make sure they, they have a good time. So I often call myself the happiness fairy and my job <laughs> is just to make sure just to facilitate a good time for the herpers that come down there. So that's wow. fabulous. And so to yeah. kind of go into, uh, details, general details, shall we say. So how, um, is it, this is all inclusive, say of airfare, you just, you say you need to turn up in place X on this date and we'll drop you off there in place yeah. y and every, everything else you're paying some, some price. What is there kind of a general yeah. range to give people ideas and all that? Yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, this is all nonprofit. Uh, this we're not, you know, nobody's putting kids through college with this, this, uh, any, <laughs> Any profit from this goes to something called Project Amazonas, which uh, helps the local people with things like uh, building clinics, uh, getting doctors down there, that kind of thing. Uh, 
no expo- exploitation of local people or anything like that. In fact, we, you know, we also employ a lot of uh, local people as part of this. But uh, so Matt and I don't get paid. And there's just so we that enables us to keep the cost low. We t- typically run a 10 day trip down there, cost you two grand uh, and which 200 bucks a day, uh, uh, which um, it, in front of it sounds yeah, kind of pricey, but it's probably about. It's a lot less than some other tours, but uh, we also feed you and give you a you know, place to sleep and give you three meals a day that you don't have to cook or hunt down or drive to, you know, dinner. Oh, we have eight. Lo- breakfast is at eight. Lunch is at one and dinner is at six. And and it's uh, if you uh, talk to anybody that's been down to the food is really, really good. So we feed you well and we give you a good place to sleep and, and uh, uh, you know make it comfortable for you, but it's, it's not a, um, what they call that pillow mint herping. It's not, uh, like a five-star hotel. You're out in the middle of the rainforest, right? Uh, it's hot and sweaty and, and there are bugs and, you know, and sounds pretty good to me, but, uh, uh, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's rough and ready. You get the full rainforest experience. You know, you, you will get, uh, you'll get mosquito bites. You'll get, hot and sweaty and dirty and uh it's great you know <laughs> and uh, so we typically take people down there we have two field stations one is about 60 miles down the amazon uh it's called madre selva and we take people down there and they all have a bunch of buildings you know for people to stay and sleep and we give you mosquito netting and all that and then we have another field station about 15 miles away from Iquitos, which is the big river city down there in the Amazon, and uh, that's called Santa Cruz. And so each place is has uh, some of the same herpetofauna, but there's also um, each place also has different herpetofauna from the other one. So we get a nice mix down there. One, our Santa Cruz field station is where we find all of our bushmasters. So, uh, so that's what we do. We you know spend five days at one field station, and then we get back on the boat and go to the other field station and. So the, the job of the tourist is to uh, pay your money, buy your plane ticket to Iquitos, and then show up on the appointed day. And then we have a we have a a a, um, a guy in Iquitos who handles all of our uh, itineraries, and he meets you at the plane, he gets you to your hotel, he gets you on the boat, and then he does everything in reverse at the end of the trip, so you don't have to wander, worry about wandering around. Look trying to figure out how to get anywhere uh, it's all taken care of so we sort of coddle you a little bit up right off the plane you know we just get you where you need to go and and help you out there so so that's kind of it in a nutshell and you know our our goal we have more than 160 species of amphibians and reptiles in the area i'm not quite sure what the count is but it's over 160 and on a typical trip we'll we'll get our clients around 100, 110 species uh, over the course of that trip. So um, so we take them out and we have trails. So you walk the trails at night and walk the trails during the day. And we have kayaks for the rivers and we do nighttime boat rides. We look, uh, take people out for Amazon tree boas at night, <laughs> shine them with a flashlight. And uh, that's always an exciting uh, activity and people like that one a lot. And, uh, we have birders that come occasionally we do 6am bird boats and take them out in the morning and see some spectacular birds. And so whatever our clients are into, we try to accommodate them. So 
Excellent. Yeah, that's fantastic. So yeah, I sort of feel into it. I really enjoy it. So a hundred percent. And as you as you said, at that uh, rate sounds pretty good compared to other things that I've heard or seen. And and as, as you highlight, or when uh, Eric and I are going on a trip and we're bringing new folks along or whatever, I I pitch it just as you did. Of it's not uh, two hundred a day to nothing. It's two hundred a day to what you otherwise would spend or the time you would spend buying food or making food or doing any of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all been on those trips where it's like, Oh my God, we haven't eaten in eight hours and we got to find something to eat. Well, there's something, you know, 15 miles away. So you go over there and then the clock's ticking and then you eat, you know, and it's like, Oh, where are we going to sleep tonight? Oh my gosh. So none of that stuff is on the table anymore. Uh, you want to herp your butt off 24 seven, go ahead. Um, you know, don't get lost, but go ahead. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, you, you, you have this freedom to, or, you know, you want to take a nap at three o'clock in the afternoon, go ahead. You know, we'll wake you for supper and then we'll go out and we'll see some cool stuff in the forest that night. So it's a, it's a sort of you, you call the shots on, it's your money. You call the shots on what you want to do. And we just try to make it happen for you. And, you know, of course, most of our clients are into Bushmasters. They want to see the big Bushmaster. That's the iconic species down there. And we have managed to find at least one Bushmaster on nearly every trip I've been on. That's so, incredible. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember what our count is, but we're, we're getting pretty good at finding those things. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're pretty big, so it's not hard to spot, so... Uh, but we're, we're, we've we've got them dialed in. So and and of course, there's other iconic species that people love, like rainbow boa, right? Uh, right. Which we find every pretty much every trip we find at least a couple rainbow boas, and we have the Peruvian red tail boas down there as well. So you know, those are fabulous. If you're a snake person, those are fabulous finds. You know, so other of course we have coral snakes and other fertile ants and things like that. So there's just no end to the spectacular serpent fauna down there. And then if you're a frog person, it's also a great place to go too. So any number of large number of frogs down there. So. Awesome. Um, and in terms of, so how do we monitor that or find out that, Oh, this is when the trip's going, maybe we can sign up or whatever. Is it a, is there a notification list or a Facebook or a website or anything like that? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a uh, M M it's the, the organization's name is MT Amazon. Okay. MT Amazon Expedition. It's mtamazon.com, I think, is the website. And, uh, of course, if you follow Matt or I on Facebook, um, we also let people know through f- social media as well when we have a trip scheduled. And, of course, this year things have been really iffy. And there is a February trip uh, in the works and, you know, we're still waiting to hear how that's all is going to play out with, um, travel, uh, and what's, what's required to, uh, to go down there. Uh, things are kind of up in the air on, on what, uh, what Peru is going to want from travelers into the country. So that's, that's sort of been play. We had two, two trips scheduled and our, our January trip was, was postponed. So, um, <clears throat> so it's, it's just one of those, um, many things that have been affected by the, by the pandemic, but, uh, but we, you know, we expect to do at least one to two trips 
every year. And we usually do it in January, which is uh, the rainy season is uh, ha- a happening thing then. And we get a lot of rain, which is important for, you know, frogs. And and a lot of the, a lot of snake activity is tied to rain, too, so in the rainforest. So uh, it's a good time for us to go. So Awesome. I also did, uh, I did a trip in March uh, this past year, and I actually uh, just got out right as the country closed. We managed to get home. Uh, uh, but I did, uh, I, my uh, co-author, Josh Holbrook, took a tropical ecology class down there. So he took a bunch of his uh, students down, and I went down and helped to wrangle, wrangle some students and help facilitate that. So that was kind of fun. It was a different perspective uh, for me to uh, hang around with a bunch of college kids and, and get their perspective on, on all of this. And some of them had, you know, it's their first trip to rainforest and, um, it was just a lot of fun to, to hang out with them. So I look forward to doing that again. We'll do that probably every other year now. So. That's fantastic. One, uh, another herping, uh, herping story that you alluded to on the podcast, I think recently was, uh, the sort of discussion of the Baja trip. And so I'd be super interested in hearing about that. And one specific uh, story that was a little unclear without the, the context of having been there myself, we get into the Coke bottle situation and sort of what was supposed to happen and then what did. That was the part that I sort of I didn't catch was um, it was something with y'all walked away with bottles oh. that shouldn't have been taken. Oh, yeah. It was kind of, OK, well, what were you supposed to do that you, you failed to do? So that whole bit. Well, that's that's just that's you know an interesting um, uh, a lesson in cultural differences, right? Uh, you go to Mexico and they got Coke. You think, oh, it's just like at home. Uh, but if you uh, if you were my age, you'd remember when Coke came in glass bottles and you drank the Coke and then you brought the bottle back to the store and you got a nickel back for the or whatever for the for the bottle. Well, they still do that down there. Uh, if you get a glass bottle of Coke, which down there is made with cane sugar, by the way, and it tastes, I'm not a soda drinker, but uh, I do like the Coke in Mexico because it tastes like Coke's supposed to. It's not, there's no corn syrup in it. But if you get a glass bottle of Coke down there, um, <laughs> you have to drink it on the premises because they need that bottle back. And they need that <laughs> bottle back because the guy who distributes the Coke needs that bottle back. And so there's this, there's a supply chain of angst over empty Coke bottles, you know, got to have that bottle, got to have that bottle. So there's this chain of, you know, small, you know, five peso deposits on Coke bottles that just goes right back to the, to the Coca-Cola bottling plant. And so uh, people get a little uptight. And of course, that's just not something we worry about in our country because, you know, Coke comes in plastic bottles or, or aluminum cans. And of course you could buy it down there that way too. But the, uh, if you're going to get it in the bottle, you better drink it at, at the, at the store. So it's just, uh, it's one of those cultural differences. It, it's kind of hard to explain uh, until you, you know, get down there and, and yeah, it's, it's kind of reminds me of a related story. You have to watch the, you know, they have bottled water like we have. And, but they, they also, they have uh, two types of bottled water. They have uh, seen gas and congas, right? So, right. <laughs> so they have <laughs> get with gas or without gas, with without carbon, with and without carbonation. So, you gotta be careful what you grab off there because that that carbonated water is is uh, it doesn't really quench your thirst. It's you know, unless you 
I should put some gin or something in there. It just tastes kind of <laughs> funny. So, yeah. So you got to watch for scene and con to uh, make sure you get the right one. So, and, and of course, without gas is better. So, All right. uh, just, uh, you know, the cultural differences in Mexico, you know, many things are the same and many things are very different. So right. that's awesome. Did you see any rosy boas when you were there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've been to Baja uh, three times, three or four times. I can't remember. I have to look it up. But every time we've managed to find some uh, Mexican rosy boas, which are the, what do you call those? Uh, trivs, triv, trivs, trivagata, trivagata. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not up on the rosy boa. The current status of their taxonomy, I think it, they're all like an era trivagata. But uh, those are the ones that are uh, white and dark, right? Yeah. Uh, a cream white with uh, dark stripes, quite beautiful, and uh, managed to see those every on every trip so far. Uh, um, fairly common snake uh, to find road cruising, although I think we only found a couple this past trip. It was a little dry, but uh, uh, we did find a few. So, uh, nice. one of my favorite things to see on 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 the road at night. So, and of course in Baja, you know, during the day it's blistering hot, so. You're not stumbling around, you know, looking for things too much during the day. So road cruising is your thing. So everything is sort of oriented towards that, you know, that time uh, in the early afternoon when you start, you know, get your uh, get your dinner in early and uh, hit the roads at sunset. You know, the magic hour, what they call the hour of the rattlesnake and uh, start, uh, you know, you don't wait until after dark. You go out, you know when it's still dusk out and the light's starting to fade, then you want to get out there because the rattlesnakes are going to start moving and some of the diurnal species are going to move a little bit too. So time to hit the road. That's awesome. Um, I saw looking at the blog that you went to Cuba. Was that, yeah. I know Jeff Lem was, has, has, is associated with some trip. I wasn't sure if that was the same one or if there's there's multiple outfits kind of doing that. But that that's an looks like an awesome trip. I love Cuban boas, all the tropidophis. That uh, I don't know how you say it. The the feci f e i c k i that species fantastic. Yeah, I, I the tropidophis was those were highlights of the trip. Um, I did Jeff Lem. Uh, from Southern California, uh, does some tour, Cuba tours. I, and it's, it's one of the things I had, you know, hoped to do was go on a tour with Jeff, but, uh, I, this time I did not. I, um, I went with, uh, my, uh, Matt Cage and a few other pe- friends of mine. Uh, and, uh, we went to, uh, a, a friend, uh, somebody Matt works with does Cuba tours and they were able to put together, a uh they normally do you know just regular cuba tours havana and you know cultural tours and they were able to put together a herp oriented tour uh and we managed to secure the services of a, a herpetologist for a number of days and uh a cuban herpetologist so that was good and uh so we we went uh, that's how we went we went on what you would call a cultural visa and of course uh our Cuba doesn't really care what you do when you get there so much, but the United States, if you go to Cuba on a cultural tour, uh, the United States insists that you do cultural things. <laughs> so, you know, we, we did some, we toured 
some museums and forts and, uh, you know, did the, uh, drove around in the, the, the old cars, which is, you know, really crazy cool and things like that. So we did some cultural things. We went to the Tropicana nightclub and uh, things like that. So it was fun. It was really uh, interesting. And, uh, but we also, we also herped our butts off too. So, uh, so, you know, it's kind of a, a mixture of that, but if, if you're a tour company and you're going to Cuba, you have to have an itinerary and you kind of stick to that itinerary. Uh, but fortunately we had a lot of, you know, open time built into that itinerary for herping. So we got quite a bit of that done. And Cuba is a fascinating place to, for herpers to go. If you're into, uh, if you're into anoles and, and, and lizards, it has a, a, an incredible array of anoles. If you think about Florida for a minute and the size of Florida and the fact that there's really only one native anole across that entire state. And then you, you know, if you picture Cuba now, which is a little smaller, but not terribly smaller than Florida, you know, there are, you know, I can't recall the last species count for anolis lizards, but there's just amazing numbers of, of, uh, anoles on the Island. They've, you know, speciation is amazing. You have, you know, you have your ground anoles and, trunk anoles and treetop anoles and twig anoles and rock anoles and aquatic anoles. And it's just kind of boggles the mind. And so I think we ended up with, uh, I think 14 or 15 species of anoles on our, on our trip. And we only went on the Western third of the Island. Uh, so it was very interesting. Um, Cuban boas. That was very cool. Got a couple of those and actually went into a cave and saw one in a cave, uh, which, oh, you know, wow. they're, Right. in there eating bats and things like that. So very, very interesting uh, experience for us. And I uh, had, had a pretty good time. Their Cuban people are very warm and friendly. And, um, you know, they, they're kind of set up for tourists there. It's a different type of tourism. You don't have, you know, big hotels and resorts. And you end up staying in these little uh, bed, and, bed and breakfasts that are run by local people. And uh, spend a, you know, they have most people that do this have sort of rooms built onto their house and, you know, they'll cook you breakfast in the morning and then you get out. We had a big tour bus, so we kind of traveled around in a big tour bus. So it was, you know, we're all worked out and got to meet a lot of local people and, and, uh, it was really enjoyable. So, uh, love to go back someday. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Another big, you know, a uh, big uh, topic of discussion on the front page of the blog is your Grand Asian Adventure. And I don't know, it sounds like maybe you'd been to some of those places before, but you went to five countries over a month. Uh, is there any of that you want to hit on? Yeah. Uh, I am an Asian rat snake aficionado. Uh, so it certainly the Taiwan stuff really caught my attention with the Mandarin, um, the Carinata, yeah. the Beauty Snake, and then just seeing the Oligodon and all the different things you found. Totally amazing. Yeah. So I, I retired from the University of Illinois, May 1st, 2019. And later that week, I was on a plane to Malaysia. Uh, I had been to Thailand in 2016, and I knew I wanted to go back to Asia. And so um, some buddies of mine, uh, we had a, a trip put together to go to Thailand and Vietnam. And so that sounded great. And then I realized I was retired and I could do whatever the hell I wanted. So... <laughs> uh, I, I tacked a week on to the front of that trip and went to, to go to Malaysia. 
And uh, I wanted, I was going to meet up with uh, a couple of friends of mine and uh, we were harping with a guy that you may know. His name is uh, Kurt Orion and uh, Kurt does uh, tours over there and it is in Malaysia and he's very, in Borneo and he's very good at it. And then uh, I was kicking it around. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's, that's three weeks, you know, and then I started looking at airfare between, you know, like Malaysia flying to Hanoi and then flying from Hanoi to Bangkok and all that. And all those flights were like a hundred bucks. And I'm thinking, I'm like, well, why don't I just add on another week? And so I uh, talked to a couple of friends of mine about going to Taiwan at the end of the trip. So I ended up tacking on uh, Taiwan on the end of the trip. So uh, long story short, I went from Malaysia to Thailand, then Vietnam, then Hong Kong, and then Taiwan uh, over the course of a month. And uh, it was a, a fantastic trip. Uh, uh, it's gone a little bit too long, though. I think my wife missed me a bit. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a long time to be away from home. But, uh, man, I had a whale of a time. I, you know, harped in Malaysia for a week and saw an amazing number of, of species there. And then we moved on to Thailand, and I got to go back. And uh, it was interesting. We, we got uh, a uh, – I'm just kind of skimming some things, but we got to – a, a juvenile uh, Burmese python, uh, so you know, just a, a neonate, and the things are still, gee, they look like they're two feet long. It's still just a baby, but uh, we got one of those. And so I was very thankful that uh, the first Burmese I saw was not in Florida. Nice. So that made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that was good. And we went from Thailand to uh, Vietnam, which uh, was very exciting. And, um, uh, went flew into Hanoi, and uh, uh, you know, the it was just a great experience. The Vietnamese, Vietnamese people were very nice, very friendly people, and we had a good time there. And spent a couple of days in Hanoi uh, as well, and went to a, a big national park out in the middle of nowhere, south of Hanoi, and called Cook Fong, and and found a, a number of iconic species out there, including the uh, Theloderma. Cordicale, which is the, the mossy frog, which if you're a frog person, that's a that's an A-list frog there. And uh, we got a, a cobra there, too. Uh, uh, gosh darn it, what did we get? I think it was just a, a, a Naja Kothia, the uh, monocle cobra. And that was a lot of fun. And um, from there, we went to Hong Kong and got some of the iconic Hong Kong species as well, you know, banded crates and uh, stuff like that. And uh, then I finished it up with a, a visit to Taiwan. My bad part about the whole thing is that I got off the plane in Malaysia and I had a, a little bit of a cold and, uh, <clears throat> you know, you pick up colds and traveling, you know, from somebody else on the airplane and I didn't think much of it. But by the time I got to Thailand, I was pretty sick and uh, a full blown chest cold and fever and sweating and all that. And so I didn't want to stop the trip. So I went on to uh, Vietnam and, uh, Finally, uh, we were near the end of our Viet Vietnamese trip, but uh, I went back to Hanoi a couple days early. I had pretty sure I was getting into the pneumonia stage, so I had to go and oh, wow. uh, get some medication and spend a couple days resting at a hotel and <clears throat> got my legs back under me a little bit. So I, I managed to finish the trip okay, but it was it was kind of kind of rough uh, in that regard. But I still had a pretty good time, and as you alluded to, in, in Taiwan, we went up in into the mountains. And found uh, what I consider, you know, 
some of the highlights of the trip for me uh, was a Taiwan beauty snake, which is a snake I've been interested in for nearly 50 years. And to actually see one in the wild was was a, a big deal. And uh, and a mandarin rat snake, uh, which we found crossing a road one night. And I have to say that the, probably the mandarin rat snake was the out of all the things I found. And I, I don't remember how many species I got, a hundred and probably 150 different s- species on that trip. But that was the that was the absolute highlight of that whole trip was this mandarin rat snake and uh, to actually see one uh, up in the mountains and uh, get to, to hold it and take pictures of it was uh, it's, it was hard to beat, you know, and it's interesting because once I, once I had this thing in my hand, I've seen captive uh, mandarins before I'm familiar with that snake. And, but to see one where it lived up in these, you know, mist covered mountains at, at cool temperatures, it, it just kind of hit me that, that, the manor rat snakes are kind of like the the uh, uh, mountain king snakes of Asia. You know, it's very much like a like a Lampropeltis zonata. You know, they're you know they live at altitude. They're very secretive little lizard and rodent eaters that don't come out much. And um, it just kind of struck me how what the parallels between those two and how right. how it was. You know, so hundred percent. Uh, when you go. Yeah, when you go to another continent, you can't help but compare the herpetofauna you see to, you know, the herpetofauna back home. So, right. um, but that, yeah, just a great trip. And I was glad to get home, have a rest. And, you know, <laughs> I might, might not do another month long trip. I'm not sure. That was that was a lot. So <laughs> that's fantastic. The last uh, thing uh, before we let you go that I really wanted to talk about. Well, the last big topic. You talk about it so much, Snake Road. So for the uninitiated, which includes both Eric and I, can you talk about that, kind of the specifics of where, so where is that? You know, I type in, you know, type in Google Maps, Snake Road, it probably won't work. So what, what does that mean and what are, what are, what's going on there? <laughs> that's, that's great. I've had other people say, well, we've got a Snake Road. We've got a Snake Road where I live. But really, uh so Snake Road is in the Shawnee National Forest in southern Illinois. It's specifically, it's in Union County. It's about five miles from the Mississippi River. And it's about 20 miles south of where the glacier stops. So you have a, a, a kind of a, a forested area, sort of like Ozark Plateau type habitat over there or down there. And uh, what it is is you have the Mississippi bottomlands that uh, and on to the west, and then you have a series of limestone bluffs uh, to the east, and the, the bluffs run north and south. It's called the Shawnee Escarpment, and it's just this long line of uh, bluffs that used to be uh, back during when the glaciers melted. It used to be the eastern bank of the Mississippi River when the Mississippi River was, you know, 10, 15 miles wide uh, because of all the glacial melt-off. So you have this, you have, so if you're walking down Snake Road, you've got bluffs on one hand and swamp on the other, right? And then there's this forest road that runs at the base of the bluffs. So the swamplands, which is, you know, some oak hickory forest and a lot of bottomland swamp is, it's full of cotton mouse and, it's got timber rattlesnakes and, you know, 
all kinds of cool herps that live there. And then come October, those animals migrate to the limestone bluffs, and that's where they hibernate. So the road is nothing but a stage for to observe this migration. And they close this. This is a forest road. It's an access road. And it's closed every year because uh, since, uh, gosh, probably the early 70s, this road has been closed to keep road mortality down due to the large number of animals that cross. You know, snakes, uh, mostly snakes, but you can find a lot of different other critters down there as well. But uh, so that place has become a a place of uh, pilgrimage, right? It's a, if you're just getting into herbs and you don't know much about pit vipers, this is a good place for you to come and you're, you're on neutral ground and all the animals are protected there. You can come and observe them. You can't touch them or, you know, put them in a bag or anything like that. You know, you, but you can come and photograph them and, and see them and uh, learn about them and, and uh, not just one cotton mouth and, Maybe not just 10 cottonmouths. Maybe you see 50 or 100 cottonmouths, or, and you'll see black rat snakes and water snakes, and you might see a few copperheads and, you know, so on and so forth. So so there's a lot happening, down, and timber rattlesnakes too as well. So there's a lot happening down there in terms, because of the migration. You know, these animals more or less have to, if they're going to move, they're going to move. Even on days where the sun's not out and it's cold and rainy, you'll still see some snakes moving towards the bluffs, but... Uh, so if you can get down there on a uh, and, and walk the road on a sunny afternoon in October, uh, it, it's usually popping. There's usually a lot of activity on the road. So, so it's kind of a special place. Uh, it's actually it's only it's technically within the Shawnee National Forest, but it's also uh, in something called the Larue Research Natural Area, which gives it you know extra protection. The only thing people really can take out of there are mushrooms. Everything else is protected. All plants and animals are protected. They can't be collected. They can't be harassed, uh, anything like that. So so it's a bloody miracle that we're still allowed to do this, in my mind, because you it's just one of those places where everything is strictly protected, but you can still go there and see them. Uh, you're not allowed to have hooks or tongs. You can't have any collecting paraphernalia. You can't have bags or anything like that. You, you get a big ticket for that kind of stuff because we we do have law enforcement presence in the area and people uh, just just to keep the what we call the poachers, you know, keep poachers out of there because <clears throat> that that has been a problem in the past. But uh, if you just want to come down and see and maybe photograph some iconic North American pit fibers, it's a it's just a great place to come. So uh, that's that's Snake Road in a nutshell. And I've, <laughs> I I'm I'm fortunate I live about four hours north of Snake Road. And uh, so I, I started, I went down there, <clears throat> the first time I went down there was in 1977. I was taking a, a, a college class called Swamp Ecology, and I uh, took a busload of us down there, and it was kind of a overcast gray day, temperature in the high 40s, and we saw snakes all over the place. And, you know, even even my feeble mind back then, I'm I'm thinking... What what's going on here? I mean, all the snakes at home are asleep. I can't go out in you know the local woods and find snakes when it's forty-seven degrees and overcast. So it's just sort of become this this fascinating place because there's all these 
things going, there's all these uh, behaviors, you know, that, that are in play here because of a winter approaching. These animals have to move uh, off. Obviously they move, you know, more on sunny days, but they also move when it's, it's not the best conditions as well. So, so 1977, my first trip, and uh, I've been coming down quite off. I, I haven't missed a year since uh, 94. And uh, so I, I know I've been down more than 100 times, but I, I lost track. So, wow. so I, I enjoy it. And, of course, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those. It's a great place for me to go down and hang out with people. And so I get to meet people from uh, I made a lot of friends from that going down there. Uh, people all over the country that come here, come down there. I've you know made a lot of good friends there. Uh, I go down. I just kind of go down there now to socialize and uh, hang out with people. And uh, it's kind of funny with some of my uh, friends that live out west, uh, you know, Mexico and Arizona. They're like, well, we're going to come to Snake Road this year. I'm like, oh, okay. Why the heck would you? If you live in Rattlesnake Central, <laughs> why do you want to come here? And uh, and they just think it's great, you know. They they just they they're just amazed because, of course, down out there it's a whole different ball game. You know, you're not getting out of your car and and you don't walk, you know, you don't walk a, a four mile round trip and see a hundred pit vipers. That just doesn't work that way out there. So <laughs> it is going to be a unique spot uh, for people that you know live in other parts of the country. And uh, so it's been great. I you know I I just enjoyed the friends I've made and and the things I've seen down there, and I. I don't plan on stopping uh, anytime soon. I think I'll just keep doing that till I drop, I guess. So, Excellent. so you guys should you guys should come down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it sounds amazing. It's totally different, yeah. as yeah. you say, totally different to anything that I, probably Eric as well, have ever seen. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think it, it's it's a great place. It has all the you know you have a. Uh, where it's positioned is still have a rugged terrain because the glaciers didn't get that far. And after the glaciers retreat, you get uh, coastal plain species that come north, like the green tree frogs and the Mississippi green water snakes and things like that. And you, you have the Ozark plateau influence from the West and you have Eastern forest influence from the East. And you have some of the, the Northern species, the prairie species come in. And so it's this big collision zone of things. And so the ringneck snakes down there are really weird. You have, you know, all, all the permutations of ringnecks are down there and you get, you know, it's just kind of a, a, an interesting mix of, of, uh, fauna. And because it's protected and there's not a lot of people down there most, most of the time, uh, there's, there's quite, still quite a bit of, of herps around. So, and I like the fact that it's protected, you know, and, uh, those of us who go down there on a regular basis, uh, you know, we keep our eye out, and, uh, you know, make sure the knuckleheads are uh, <laughs> not doing anything they shouldn't do. So, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we feel like it's our place to protect. So, uh, so yeah. That's fantastic. Go ahead, Eric. No, no, no. I was just going to say one of these days you can't be a snake lover and live in the U.S. <clears throat> and not go to Snake Road, right? Well, <laughs> you know, some some... Some herpers who are too cool for school think it's, <laughs> think it's kind of a, you know, I can't go. There's too many people there. I only hurt by myself or whatever. But wow. it's it's kind of a great place to to get your get your feet wet with a lot of different herps and also sure. to hang out with your tribe. You know, that's yes. the other thing is I meet people from all over the not just 
the United States, but from other countries too that come there to to see that place and see those animals. So it's just kind of a fun place to hang out with, you know, people from everywhere. And then, you know, because it's October, you, you know, you can't really do much at night. You can go out and look for salamanders and stuff, but generally we have, you know, we camp out, we have campfires and we bring people sure. into the campfires. And we all sit around and get to know each other. So it's just a great place to to meet people and make friends and, and hang out and be with your, your people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the one thing that, uh, that's another uh, added bonus to herping. If you herp with the right people, it's uh, you 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 uh, have lifelong friendships, if you will, uh, develop from yeah. from those experiences. You know, yeah, and that's you know that's probably the all herps aside, it's been uh, that's been an incredible thing. Just the the people I've met along the way. You know, absolutely. So. So the final question I had for you, I know you, you mentioned as a quotation on the blog there, too many, uh, too many and too much problem, right? The, that's the herb situation. But in, in bearing that in mind, what, uh, what would be sort of the top, top couple things that you're thinking, sitting here itching, saying, oh, I need to try and get to places X, Y, and Z see, and to see whatever it would be. <laughs> How much time we got? <laughs> as much as you want. No worries there. Uh, well, I um, I need to get to Australia. Um, that's always been uh, in the back of my mind. And, of course, after talking to Scott and uh, a couple other people who have been there recently, it just keeps rising up the list. So I'm going to have to make some decisions on that. Um, and uh, – um, I've always wanted to herp in Europe and some of the spots in, in Europe. And I, I had uh, 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 a, a Belgian guy, uh, Jeroen Spaybrook, on the show uh, a while back. And uh, I've communicated with him for quite a while and had him on the show and talked about European herping. And I got his European field guide. I've been tearing that apart and pretty sure I need to to get over there soon. So that's, that's on the horizon, uh, Spain, Greece in particular. And then, uh, I'm trying to fill in some other blanks too. I, uh, had a trip to Morocco planned, uh, for this past fall. And of course that, that went by the wayside. So we're trying to get back to Morocco at some point or get to Morocco at some point and filling in a few other blanks here. I've got, uh, uh, so th- those are sort of the loose targets that I have in front of me. I, and I know every year I, t- I usually make a trip to Mexico, somewhere in Mexico. So that's probably going to happen, although I don't have anything lined up yet. And that's, that's a, and there's other places in South America I'd like to get to uh, as well. So kind of, I'm kind of all over the map, but um, I, you know, uh, I'm still, you know, physically fit and I can still get around and, and hike and, and, uh, go up mountains and things like that. So I'd like to get as much of that done while I, you know, <laughs> while I still can. So, uh, so I, I feel the need to, to start hitting some of the iconic spots, but I, I you know, Australia is big. Uh, it's a big spot. I'd really like to get back to Southeast Asia and, um, more, more Malaysia and Borneo and things like that. So, and I, I, you know, I still have a lot of stuff in the United States I haven't seen yet. So, 
Um, <clears throat> that was going to be my question. Is there a species that has eluded you in the U.S.? Uh, no, uh, but there are species that I I haven't tried for that um, it kind of bug me, uh, like mole, mole king snakes. Um, uh, that's a big one for me. Uh, I'd like, I, I need to spend some time working on those and, uh, oh yeah, there's a few things that have eluded me like an Eastern, Eastern king snake. Uh, you know, I've been on trips where people have found them, but I have not seen one myself. Right. Uh, so I'd like to, I'd like to correct that. And, uh, I need to spend some more time in Florida cause I'm missing some, uh, Florida species. And, and I, I, uh, I'm also, one of the other things that has eluded me is a Texas indigo or at least a live Texas indigo. And, uh, and, uh, I have not found a live coral snake in the United States either. Uh, <laughs> I have found coral snakes in Mexico and uh, <laughs> Peru and where else? Oh, probably a few other places, but I have, I've only seen DOR coral snakes in the United States. So I'm, I really need to get on those. So I need uh, a live Texas coral and a live, uh, common coral snake, uh, Microus fulvius. So, uh, I need to work on those things too. So, um, it's a good thing that nobody, uh, you know, sets, uh, sets priorities for you. So I, I keep getting <laughs> distracted by, uh, by these, you know, trips to other countries and foreign lands. It's like, no, 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 you can't go until you get a coral snake. So fortunately right. we don't have funny, <laughs> funny rules like that. Right. So, uh, that's great. So, that's great. Okay. Can I just say all the hurts? I, I just want all the <laughs> Sure. <laughs> all of them, right? Yeah. Uh, anything else you have, Rob? No, this has been fantastic, uh, Mike. I really appreciate awesome. it. I guess the last thing I wanted to make sure we had put out there was that you do have another book, the, the Redfoot Tortoise Manual. So that that's yet another yeah. thing that you've done. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, I uh, I adopted a a pair of redfoots in 1997 uh, from a woman who had, she'd had a car accident and she had uh, some brain damage and she, she wasn't able to take care of them. Bless her heart. And uh, so I, I promised her I would take good care of her tortoises. I didn't know anything about redfoots. And so I started trying to find information and there was not much. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I did in my career at the university is I wrote a lot of procedures documentation. And so it seemed like a natural thing for me was to research the issue and then write procedures documentation on how to take care of redfoot tortoises. So I did spend a couple of years working on that and uh, managed to, to put the book out and for, for, you know, redfoot tortoise keepers. And, and also it's great to a couple other people have put out some really good redfoot books and as well. So I think that species is, is uh, well, will be well cared for now. So. But at the time, there was not much information. And as you know, uh, in the keeper community, there's lots of things that lots of bits of knowledge that people hang on to that are just totally untrue. (laughs) (laughs) You you guys know this, right? So there are people that they come up with the craziest stuff. um, And I'm not sure how they get there. A lot of magical thinking about um, dietary issues and captive care and stuff like that. And uh, temperatures and oh gosh, all kinds of crazy things. So it was just very interesting wading through 
piles of disinformation. Uh, right. You know, and of course the internet's, you know, it's just only gotten worse on the internet, but uh, that was definitely experience trying to, trying to come up with what, what the animals really need because you had to really, I had to really learn what the animals were doing in the wild. And of course I had some right. people in other countries who helped me understand that a lot better, you know, by what, the, what they were eating, what, what their temperature conditions were and things like that. So that, that was a big help in writing the book. And, uh, uh, thank goodness I don't have to write another one of those, but, uh, um, <laughs> it was an adventure. So that's excellent. Very good. Okay. Uh, and you're, uh, for those, uh, who don't know, uh, so much Pingle podcast, uh, excellent. You should check it out. Thank um, you. I don't know. Anything else you want to throw out there as far as, uh, I don't know, anything you want to, prom- anything? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you, you promoted my book, uh, my books and you promoted my website and, uh, my blog basically, and you promoted my, uh, podcast. So I, I, th- I think so we're done here. <laughs> I have nothing oh, else. Uh, I wish I had some like vitamin supplements I could, uh, <laughs> you know, I could sell those for me or something. Mushroom extract. Great. How about that? Yeah. There you go. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you thanks so much. For having, uh, for thanks coming. for having me on. I, I really enjoyed you guys. Let me just talk and talk and talk. So it's, uh, That's as deal, somebody man. who's on the other side of the, of the mic, um, it, it was, it's kind of refreshing because, you know how it is. You guys, you guys kind of guide the and and let the guests be the fire hose and just let them talk and talk to her. So it's it's kind of fun to be in in the other chair. So appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, all right. I guess that's uh, we did it. Uh, thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, appreciate uh, appreciate your time. Thank, thank you for having me.